0: Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. We will be looking at other passages, but we will begin in Ephesians chapter 3. We continue our series of meditations on the Trinity, and today I would like us to consider the matter of God the Father. Just to review very briefly and to set the stage... We've seen what the Trinity is not. The Trinity is not three gods, tritheism. There's one God, but three persons. The Trinity is not three aspects. It doesn't describe three aspects of God. This belief is called modalism, that somehow the Trinity describes three separate roles that one God played in different times. So in the Old Testament, he's God the Father. In the New Testament, he's God the Son. And then after the Ascension, he's God the Holy Spirit. Um, No. But also we have seen that the Trinity is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction to speak of God as one God and three persons. Some would argue that this can't end doesn't really make sense. Perhaps, but it is not a contradiction. Okay? The way in which God is one is different in the way in which he is three. As again, I've quoted this several times. One writer has put it this way. God is not one something and also three of the same somethings. Okay? If we were to say that God is one person and God is three persons, then that would be a contradiction. But the way in which God is one is not the same way in which he is three. He is one in name and nature, he is three in persons. And again, this is difficult, if not impossible, for us to fully comprehend. But we need to agree that it is not a contradiction. It's not contradictory. It is the center of our faith. It is that behind which all reality stands. Without this, um, we would not have reality. Without the Trinity, reality as we know it could not or would not exist. This is... Who God is and who He has always been. It's not somehow some unfolding in Scripture as it is written. God is one, and that one God is three persons. Today I want us to consider for meditation three passages that deal with God the Father, though we may not, at first glance, take it to be that way. Two of them, I will confess, are in fact difficult passages. But I think they are really important for us to understand God the Father. The first one is here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Follow along if you would as I read. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. By the way, a very Trinitarian passage. Did you notice that? Paul mentions the Father, the Spirit, and Christ. If you look at the beginning of this chapter, Paul starts out by saying, For this reason. But then in verse number two, he sort of gets sidetracked. And so in verse number 14, he comes back and begins once again, For this reason. He hasn't completed his thought, and now he wants to complete the thought. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Something to notice here. Kneeling was not the normal position for prayer among the Jews. Um, Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who went to the temple. They were standing and praying. That was the normal posture for prayer. We're told of at least three occasions in which people did not stand to pray. One is in Ezra when Ezra is confronted by the sin of the people who have returned from exile, when, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God. Um, this was a posture of confession, in which he confessed the sins of his people. And then we have the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus faced his coming suffering and death, he fell to the ground and prayed. And then Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Uh, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out loud, and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. We see a pattern here, that not standing in prayer and falling to the ground, Paul here mentions kneeling, reflects a particular earnestness. Uh, Ezra is confessing the sins of his people. He's really almost overcome by their sinfulness. And Jesus, as he faces his coming death, and Stephen, as he is about to die, uh, we find them on the ground praying that this kneeling, in fact, speaks of a particular earnestness. And I think this is what Paul intends when we, we see this. As we have seen in our study, praying is Trinitarian. We pray to the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. So we're not surprised, we shouldn't be surprised, that Paul prays to the Father. But Paul says something unusual here, in that he describes God the Father in the following way, from whom his whole family, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. Um, the, the NIB has a footnote from whom all fatherhood derives its name. Some translations have every family in heaven and on earth is named. We might ask, what does Paul mean by this? Um, it almost seems to contradict what he said in the previous chapter in Ephesians 2 um, about the Jews and the Gentiles being made into one family. But Paul is, in fact, speaking of the household of God in heaven and on earth. Those who have gone before us, those are here with us. But Paul is saying something else. It's a play on words. Father is pater, family is patria. Paul is not saying that not only is the whole Christian family named from the father, does it derive its name from the father, but the very notion of fatherhood comes from the fatherhood of God. The relationship between human fatherhood and divine fatherhood is neither one of analogy, that God is a father the way that human fathers are fathers, nor is it one of projection, Uh, you know, with Freud, with the idea that we invented God and the most powerful figure in our lives will be our father, and so we project that and say that God, in fact, is our father. Um, No. The fatherhood of God is, in fact, the archetypal reality. This is where it all begins. We have earthly fathers because God in heaven is our Father. How we deal with this will determine our view of God's revelation in Scripture. It's the heart of the matter. I think if we get this wrong, then we might as well just quit, in my opinion. Um, Now, I think we can agree that God transcends Gender. Okay. But we have to be careful here. One author, um, should I say his name, Deepak Chopra, in his book says that calling the deity he or she is just a human convention. In other words, this is something we made up. He continues in a footnote, a note on gender, finding a pronoun for God is not easy. In keeping with common tradition, this book uses he, but surely God transcends all gender. I could have rotated three different pronouns, he, she, and it. But this would not have gotten any nearer to the truth and it would have made for very clumsy reading. Just a side note, no, you could not use it because God, in fact, is one and he is three persons. If we were to say... That God is seen as father, son, and spirit as opposed to mother, daughter, and spirit, or parent, child, and spirit, because of a patriarchal tradition rather than a revelation of God, then we've lost everything, okay God is Father because God has revealed himself as father, okay God is not Father because we say he is. Okay? And this is critical because if we say that God is Father because, millennia ago, the people that God called are like, "What should we call God? Oh, let's think of Him as Father. Um, then, in fact, we have constructed the nature of God. We have given him a name. We don't call God Father because of our earthly fathers. Okay. We call our earthly fathers father because of God the Father. Our faith is not a human construction. And that's really critical. And although Paul has a different point, I think, here in Ephesians 3 than what I am saying, what I'm aiming at, the reality is that God is Father and all fatherhood comes from him, derives from him. Okay? Otherwise, we made up God. But then did we make up the Trinity as well? It's very dangerous ground. So that's the first passage. The second passage is found in Matthew 5 and 6, part of 7 as well, the Sermon on the Mount. From what we find in Matthew's account, Jesus had already been teaching and preaching in Galilee. He'd been preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, calling his listeners to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we are told at the beginning of chapter 5, he went up on a mountain with his disciples. He sat down, he gathered his people around him, and then he begins to teach. This, by the way, recalls what we see of Moses going to Sinai. That, in fact, God gave the law to Moses, and here Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells his people, this is how you were supposed to live. Moses was the mediator. God did not give his law directly to Israel. He did it through Moses. And God the Father speaks through Jesus, God the Son, and gives us the law of the kingdom. He is the mediator. What does Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think I've done a series of 20 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to do that today. But I would point out something that we may have missed. And that is, at least 20 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points us to the Father at least 20 times in these three chapters he points to the Father and I'll just mention some of the passages in chapter 5 the first reference by the way in the Gospel of Matthew to God the Father we do hear God the Father when Jesus is baptized this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased God the Father speaks from heaven but we have the first mention of God the Father in chapter 5 verse 16 Um, in the same way let your light Shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The beginning point for us is to realize what is our purpose in life. And our purpose in life is to bring glory to the Father. We are to live lives that cause other people to praise God. Not to praise us, but to praise God the Father. Then at the end of chapter 5, we are told that we are to be like our Father. Verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is the expression, like father, like son. We are to be acting like our Father in heaven. We are to act graciously, even to those who hate us and curse us. And we are to love those who are our enemies which, by the way, presupposes that we will have enemies. Not everyone's going to love us. But we, in fact, are to be as God, God who causes the sun to shine, not just on good people or righteous people or his people, but on the righteous and the unrighteous as well. Third thing, who is to be our audience? It is to be God the Father. In chapter 6, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Our Father is to be our audience. We are not here to be seen by other people, to be praised by other people and we're not even here to be seen by ourselves to praise ourselves that's why I don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing or vice versa in 1st corinthians 4 paul says i don't judge myself but that doesn't make me innocent so in the same way we are not to say look in the mirror and say look at what i am doing or what i have done no the audience is God our father he is our father we should not care what other people think. And then we are to converse with our Father. This is one of the things that Chopra has missed. God is three persons, He is a person. He's our Father. There is to be a relationship. So we want to glorify Him, we want to be like Him, we want Him to see what we have done. But we also want to talk to Him, we want to have a conversation. This is not something you do with an it. Okay. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. In other words, if you want to be seen by people and praise, that's it, you got it. That's your, That's your reward. But when you pray... We've seen time and time again that prayer is a conversation, it is a dialogue, a conversation that the conversing God began. And because he is a person, three persons, he has spoken, we are to respond in prayer. We pray that our Father may in fact hear us responding to him. But then there's something else, and something that I think is critical that we might have wanted to put at the beginning, but... Jesus puts it here near the end of chapter 6. That is, we are to trust our Father. Because after a while, if you're like, okay, I want him to be praised or glorified, I want to be like him, he is my audience, I want to talk to him. But then the issue of trust comes up. Can, in fact, I trust my Father? Beginning at verse number 25 of Matthew 6. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Who is in control of reality? And who cares for us and cares about us? Who takes care of us? It is the same God who takes care of the birds, the flowers of the field. He is our Father. But then that brings up the last question Is in fact God your Father? In chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. God is not your heavenly Father then you don't need to worry about any of the things that Jesus mentioned, about bringing glory to the Father, being like the Father, loving and gracious, uh, the Father being your audience, the one that you seek to please, the one to whom your prayers are directed, the one in whom you put all your trust. But if God is your Father, then all of these things that Jesus says in this sermon are to be applicable And we are to trust God our Father. Our third passage is 1 Corinthians 11. And I think I will have you turn there. Um, This is one of the more difficult passages in a difficult book, 1 Corinthians. And oftentimes is misunderstood uh, Well, because people focus on men having long hair, That's that passage. But in fact, I think it is a profound passage about God as Father. It's difficult for a number of reasons, but in this chapter, Paul deals with abuses in public worship. The second abuse, by the way, that's the section from which we get the passage that we read before communion. That the Corinthians were doing communion in in an absolutely wrong way. They were abusing it. They were going ahead of those who were poor and they were basically denigrating those who were not of the same social economic status. But the first abuse is dealt with in verses 3 through 16. It has to do with women and head coverings. The problem that we face with this passage is that we are trying to reconstruct. It's a conversation, and we only have Paul's side of the conversation. It's like when you hear somebody talking on the phone. You don't hear the other person, and you try to imagine, okay, what was it that he or she said that caused this person that I can hear to respond in this particular way? Um, I'm convinced the Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was talking about. Okay? We're the ones who are sort of in the dark. But all is not lost. Um, I I think we can make some sense of this. What we find is that women in the church in Corinth, some of them, were preaching and praying in public worship with their heads uncovered. Now that, we don't know what it means. We do not know what it means. Um, Did it mean an external covering like a veil, for example? Um, I don't think so, because in verse number 15, Paul will refer to their hair as their covering. Um, Some believe that it refers to hair, but it has to be long hair. Um, And I'm not sure about that. Some believe that it refers to the fact that their hair is loose, that they sort of let their hair down, which was culturally acceptable for unmarried women, but once a woman was married she had to sort of tear, uh, tie her hair up. Um, why the Corinthian women were doing this is really debatable. Okay? I do find it important that Paul has no problem with women preaching and praying in public worship. You read the passage and he doesn't say, women, you need to cut that out. You need to stop doing that. His issue is that they are doing it with their heads uncovered. I think what they were doing, the women who are doing this, and not all the women in the church are doing this, is they were preaching and praying dressed like men. They were trying to look like men. And that's the issue that Paul deals with here. There are three arguments here verses 3 through 6. Uh, Verses seven through twelve and thirteen through sixteen. But the key verse to me is verse number three. And for our purpose looking at God the Father, now I want you to realize that every of every the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Look at verse number four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Okay, a bit confusing, but again, verse number three is the key. It's the theological basis. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of Christ is God. What does Paul mean by this? What can he mean? Is it a metaphor? Is he speaking of hierarchy? That there's we start with God the Father, we have Christ, we have man, we have woman at the bottom. Um, is it speaking of the source of life? That man got his life from Christ. Uh, Christ is begotten by the Father, woman comes from man. Is it speaking of relational? Is it speaking of relationship? Um Traditionally, people have seen this in terms of authority. Who's in charge? Who's the boss of whom here? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's speaking of origin. If we take it chronologically, Christ is seen as the source of every man's life. Okay? Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created. And secondly, man is seen as the source of woman. Woman is taken from the rib of man, and God creates woman. And then in terms of the incarnation, Christ came into the world through the work of God. God is the source of Christ. This, I think, is what Paul is saying in verse number 3. This is the foundation. So, having established that, then Paul makes the application, beginning with men that men are not to pray or prophesy with his head covered. Um, we're not exactly clear what this is about. Uh, some people would say, well, you know, if you look at Jews, when they pray, they, they wear the, the covering over their head. Uh, that was not the practice in the first century. Jewish men did not cover their heads when they prayed. Whenever you see movies that are made of first century stories of Jesus or the apostles, people go into the temple of the men and they cover their heads. Yeah, that, that wasn't the practice. Okay. So that's not what Paul is talking about. When Paul says that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, again, we're not completely sure what he's talking about there. Um, but all is not lost. Okay. So it's not hopeless. It is clear that whatever having her head uncovered meant, two things were the result. One was unintentional, one was intentional. First of all, the lines between the genters became blurred. Between male and female, suddenly it is blurred. You don't you do you no longer have men and women in the church. You have well you're not sure. They all seem to be the same. And secondly, such behavior was in fact disgraceful. Culturally, it was unacceptable. And We saw, If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And what does Paul say? He doesn't go to Leviticus. Because there's there's a passage in Leviticus, very clear, you can't do this. Paul says, not even the pagans do this. Gentiles don't do this. Culturally, this is unacceptable. So somehow, the Corinthian women who were believers were somehow trying to look like men so you couldn't tell if they were male or female. It is a disgrace. It is a shame. That's why Paul continues to deal with it in verses 7 through 12. Look at verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Paul continues, but now comes at it from a different angle. Man shouldn't cover his head because he is the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. And then he makes this fascinating statement that, in fact, woman came from man. Man didn't come from woman. But in fact, they both have their origin in God. Eve came from Adam, but Cain and Abel and all those since have come from women. Okay. The one thing that throws us here is the word authority. Verse number 10. Verse number 10 is difficult already because why does he mention the angels? Well, if you've been with us in the series on Corinthians, 1 uh, Corinthians, the Corinthians were really into the angel thing. They thought they were already in the eternal state, that they were like angels. And so Paul brings up angels left and right in First Corinthians. He doesn't anywhere else. This is what the Corinthians are saying. Secondly, the word authority is, I would say, uh, not what Paul intends. Because this word is used elsewhere in First Corinthians and it's not translated as authority. And so this is what gets some people really upset because it seems in fact that uh, man has authority over woman. In chapter 6 and in chapter 10, the word is permissible. All things are permissible. Not authority, but the same word in Greek. And in chapter 8, the word freedom. So why is it that suddenly in chapter 11, it becomes authority that man has authority over the woman? I think the thing we should see here is that in fact, there is an equality between men and women. Yes, woman came from man and she is the glory of man. But man is born of woman. And we need to be careful that somehow we don't begin to create this, this hierarchy. Because I don't think that's what Paul intends here. I really do not. His third argument is found in verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach us that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This passage has been used for decades to sort of browbeat men say that they can't have long hair. I find it interesting there are some, but rarely do people argue women should have long hair? I mean they're convinced men shouldn't have long hair, but they don 't seem equally convinced that women should have long hair, which I think is somewhat hypocritical does not nature you know does not nature show you that if a man has a long has long hair it is a disgrace? Um, the NIV puts it well here: the very nature of things. Okay, Paul's not talking about creation. Okay, that that creation tells us that men should not have long hair. Okay, um, if in fact nature said we shouldn't have long hair, why is it that men always have to get haircuts? Because in fact their hair grows. Um, it is worth noting um, that in the Guinness Book of Records. Um, The person with the longest hair is a man in Vietnam. His hair is 22 feet long. Um, So nature doesn't teach us that man shouldn't have long hair. It is the culture that surrounds us that says, at least in Paul's culture, that a man should not have long hair. It is worth noting that Paul took a vow when he went to Corinth because he was concerned about persecution there. And he made a vow, and for 18 months, he did not cut his hair. And then when he gets to Cancrea, he cuts it off, he saves it, and he takes it to the temple in Jerusalem to pay the vow. Your hair grows at six inches a year. So 18 months, his, his hair was nine inches long. That's kind of long. Okay? What Paul is arguing about is somehow the Corinthians like, we're not like those pagans out there. We can do whatever we want. Hey, come to our church. Our women look like men. And Paul says, no, this is not acceptable. We live where we do because God has put us there. And we need to be appropriate. We need to be uh, be somber. We need to be in line to the extent that it does not violate God's law, cultural norms, and propriety. Okay, three passages, what do we learn from them? Fuel for meditation. First of all, human beings did not come up with the concept of God as Father. Just as they did not come up with the concept of Trinity. This is foundational. This is non-negotiable. If in fact we conclude that we say we call God the Father because of our earthly fathers, then we've lost everything. God is the creator, and God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. I do agree that God transcends gender, but God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's foundational. Secondly, since God is our Father, this points to a relationship. We are His children, He is our Father. And oftentimes, depending on your relationship with your father, you might have different views of that. But Jesus doesn't allow for that. Jesus says, listen, God is your father. This is what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to live a life so that people will look at your father and think he's great. They will glorify him because of the way you live. Secondly, you are to be like your father. If you are the child of someone, but you act nothing like them, what does it say about that father? But God is our father. He is a good father. We are to be like him. We are to be loving. We are to be gracious. And he is the one that we seek to please. He is our audience, not everybody else, not ourselves. He has taught us. He is leading us. We act appropriately. We do what we do for him. And we talk to him, or we should. We converse with him. Um, There's a wonderful novel by Chaim Podok called The The Chosen. It's been made into a movie in which a rabbi, uh, in order to teach his son appropriately, does not speak to him from the age of four, I think, to the age of 18. He raises him in silence. I don't think God has raised us in silence. There may be times when it seems that God is distant and is not speaking to us. But I would argue that in creation, every day as God sustains us, he is speaking to us and we converse. And at the very least, we should say, thank you, Father, for what you have given us. And we are to trust him. If it seems that, in fact, maybe he hasn't spoken to us, he's not speaking to us, um, and there are those who have experienced that. And it is, I think, a very difficult time. And yet there has to be trust. Mother Teresa said that for the last 20 years of her life, she had no sense of the presence of God. And yet she continued because she trusts, trusted her Heavenly Father. And in fact, he will take care of us. And he does every day. And then the third thing, fuel for meditation, that we find in 1 Corinthians 12. We find Jesus mentioned and the Father, but not the Spirit. He is mentioned in chapter 12. What the Corinthian women had lost sight of, and we see it in chapter 12 as well, is they wanted everybody to be the same. They wanted unity, but no diversity. So we don't want men and women, we're all going to look alike. Because God is one. Yes, God is one, but God is three persons. There is unity and there is diversity. And within that diversity is equality. So it isn't man-woman. It isn't man higher than woman. A woman can pray and prophesy, Paul says. But she needs to acknowledge that she is a woman, she is different than man. Rather than saying, no, 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 I, I, I want to look like a man, I, I want to be like a man, no, no, no. Um, in the same way that God is one God and three persons, He has made the human race consisting of male and female. We're not all male, we're not all female, we're male and female. And there is an egalitarian nature, there's an equality there. The Corinthian women had lost sight of that. And Paul, to correct it, points to the Trinity. God the Father. Christ comes from him. The woman came from man, but now man is born of woman. These Corinthian women, I can't imagine how many there were, but they were somehow trying to say, no, 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 there's, there's no gender. We're all one. If you get to chapter 12, uh, Paul says that we've been baptized in the Spirit. And the one thing Paul doesn't say there's neither male nor female, because that's exactly what the Corinthians were saying. No, in God's creation there is male, there is female. It reflects the diversity of the Trinity: one God and three persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. Now let me just say something in closing. I recognize that in today's culture the things I've just said could be viewed by some as hate speech. But this is what we find in scripture. The one God and three persons. The one human race and two genders. And the attempt to somehow blur the lines there is in fact an attack on the Trinity. It is an attack on saying no, 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 we just have one God. Not three persons, just one person. No, no. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which there is much confusion. Much confusion, and particularly about gender matters, we should not be surprised, because if, in fact, people have turned their backs on the triune God, one God and three persons, unity and diversity should not be surprised, that they get very confused and begin to come up with all sorts of things. The Corinthian women, even though they were believers, became confused because they saw you only as one person. But our Father, we are grateful that you are one God but three persons. That we pray to you, our Father, through your Son, by the power of your Spirit. This is not meant to be a theological lecture. But a meditation on who you are as God our Father. That all things come from you. And as your children we should want to praise you. To glorify you. To cause people to look at you and praise you. We should want to be like you. And trust you and talk to you. I ask that in the coming days we would think on these things, meditate on them, and put them into practice. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.